You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Hey, Dan, what's up? Do you remember life before the internet? Like when we were kids? Barely. I barely do. My my dad was like an early adopter. We were like the first kids on our block to have Prodigy, if you remember oh, Prodigy. Oh, I had Prodigy too. Yeah. And I remember doing all kinds of like, I'm like literally mad libs online. And um, so, yeah, the internet's been a part of my life. But of course, back, you know, when in the early 90s when I was a kid, um, it wasn't a big part of your life. It was just kind of a, a like a little hobby. It, it didn't take a lot of your life. It's nothing like now. Yeah, I feel like now I'm on it a lot more. Uh, and my students are also on it a lot more, mm-hmm. um, which it just makes me think like what – how is education or how, how should education have transitioned to a, a place where we did not have the internet as a part of our life to, you know, one where it's more – just there all the time. I feel like in the air, I can touch the internet. It's omnipresent. Yes. That was a word. I had a vocab for the college bound class in high school. And that's like one of three words I remember from it. Omnipresent. So luckily, I mean, I think we need to think about this because schools have often been criticized for not responding well to the changing world, right? Schools stay the same. The world's changing. And I think a lot of schools, you just don't see the shift with the way that we access information and the rise of social media, we don't see that shift happening in school to educate students for that world. But luckily, by total luckily. coincidence, we have a guest today who's going to be able to speak to this. And he has been thinking about the internet for just about as long as anyone. So we'd like to welcome Howard Rheingold to the podcast. Hi. I remember what the internet, what, what life was like before the internet. As a, a writer, uh, I had a typewriter. And I had a uh, for research. I had a telephone and a library card, and I, I I got on the on the bus and went to the library, and that's how I I learned things. So the Dewey from, Decimal System I thought was fantastic. Hey, that's uh, still used, Michael, as my librarian wife often points out. <laughs> there's some problems with the Dewey Dewey Decimal System, but let's let's not get too far astray here. <laughs> um, for for me, as a as a writer primarily, and more recently as an educator, it's like I started out with a horse and buggy and now I have my own space shuttle. I mean, it, it's uh, an astonishing amplification of my ability to, to learn and to think and to express myself. And why don't we do this a little bit backwards? I'm gonna just start with my big idea. And and the big idea is, uh, you know, for it's, it's it's pluses and minuses. Schooling, formal education, has more or less had a monopoly on learning for a long, long time. There are rock carvings of Sumerian students sitting in a row watching a teacher. Uh, A few individuals have been autodidacts and have managed to learn by themselves, but for the most part, if you want to learn something, you go to school. That is not true anymore and hasn't been true for a long time. And there are a lot of students going into college now who grew up in a world where 
if you want to learn how to play the ukulele or configure a web server or make a, a bench out of wood, you went to YouTube and, and searched on it. So we now have the amazing cornucopia of tools, if you know how to use them, from search to video to all of the social media that enables people to communicate with each other that enables people to learn even if they're not in school. So I'm going to circle back to this um, with something I call pedagogy. but let me just introduce myself since I'm, I'm doing this backwards. Um, I taught social media issues, digital journalism, and social media literacies at University of California at Berkeley and, and Stanford for 10 years. I, I retired in 2015. Prior to that and, and parallel to that, since I was 23 years old, I've been a, a freelance writer. And it happened that in the, in the process of looking for interesting things to write, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, I became interested in the stories that weren't being told about the, these new things, personal computers. And a lot of people were interested in Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, for good reason, but they didn't know about Doug Engelbart and, and Xerox Park and, and, and ARPANET and where all of these things actually came from and, and why. So I started writing about that, and as part of my research, I got a modem, cost me $500, Ooh. 1,200 bits per second. You could, in some of these, some of the BBSs that I logged on to, a BBS, a bulletin board system, pre-internet social media, um, you could log in and then go put on a pot of coffee and come back, and, and you would still be logging in. You could so, download a whole picture. It would take you an hour, but you'd get it eventually. Oh, no pictures, just words. Uh, well, I wrote about virtual communities in 1987. And so the, uh, the people who could be on the ARPANET, there was no internet, um, they just had words. I'll, I'll, I'll skip ahead on that. I, I became involved in virtual communities, wrote a book of that name in, in 1992. And, and what's now called social media. I, I was fascinated by it, not just as a, a writer, but as a, a participant in it. I, uh, I even had a startup in 1996. I had Electric Minds. Um, it was named by Time Magazine, one of the 10 best websites in 1996. It was out of business in 1997. So <laughs> I've had uh, a lot of participation as well as observation of social media. And about the time my daughter started in college, uh, I became concerned that college students who were immersed in, at that time it was chatting and instant messaging, you know, this is before Facebook and, and, and Twitter and, and Snapchat, that universities weren't really approaching the issues that were raised by our use of these media. And I thought it was a great way to talk about things that sociologists and psychologists and economists and computer scientists have been saying and bring that together and enable young people to have some kind of critical analysis of what it is that they, they do all day. So I started teaching these courses. Stanford wanted me to teach digital journalism. I objected that I wasn't a journalist and, and Fred Turner there convinced me that what I was doing was sort of journalism. And then I, I proposed and was, was able to teach a course on, on social media issues. 
So we talked about public sphere. Um, what is what is community really? Um, what is social capital? How does that relate to what we do online? A lot of interesting issues that that have texts in all of the the, the different disciplines, but can be used as lenses on, on how we use social media. I really had no training as a, an educator. I was confident that I knew the subject matter, but I stood in front of those students and I didn't want them to know how, how little I knew about how to teach. Uh, but you know, I, I took a bold move and, and this I think will, will go to my advice to educators. I began admitting to them that I know these media, and by the way, if, if we're going to be studying social media issues, let's use social media. So yes, we had three hours of classroom time. Um, yes, I lectured, uh, but we also had forums and blogs and wikis so that in between class meetings, we could use these media to extend our, our conversations and also to kind of flatten out the hierarchy of the classroom you know, I didn't invent it, but there's a, a, a good metaphor that if you took a, a soldier from a thousand years ago and put them on a battlefield today, they die right away. You took a, a surgeon from a thousand years ago and you put them in a modern surgical theater, they pretty much wouldn't know what to do. If you took students from 4,000 years ago and you put them in a classroom, everyone would know where to sit and, and, and what to expect. Um, I think social media have the potential to change that. I'm not of the belief that throwing technology at educational uh, institutional problems and, and pedagogical issues are, are the solution. And in fact, talking to my students, I discovered a, a kind of pedagogy that has nothing really to do with technology, that's nothing new, that goes back to John Dewey and Paolo uh, Freire and, and Maria Montessori that has to do with student empowerment and, uh, and trusting students to, to inquire rather than just handing them um, the answers. The more I opened up to the students about, okay, this is an experiment, what do you think? What would work better? The more I felt that, that giving up some of my teacher authority, teacher power, in exchange for them taking more responsibility for their learning, um, was not just compatible with what I was trying to teach about social media, because after all, social media are about networks. They're not about hierarchies. And the classroom's all about the hierarchy with the, the teacher having all the th of the authority. But the more I listened to the students, the more power I gave them, the more engaged they became, the more awake they became. So uh, we started with, with students doing little re reports on on some of the texts that weren't required but were recommended, uh, the students said, you know, that's boring. It's kind of like book reports. And, and so we discussed it and we came up with the idea of, well, why not co-teach with me? So teams of three students would come up with a plan in advance, a three-hour class. They were only responsible for an hour of it. They weren't responsible for getting everything across. They were responsible for finding something that excited them and engaging the other students in that. And we would meet face-to-face -face in my office a week before and discuss their plan. And then they would co-teach with me. And I told my, my students that I really encouraged cooperative learning, not just collaborative learning where we work on projects together, but cooperative learning in which we contribute to each other's learning experiences. 
but I wanted them to compete to try to outdo each other in their in their co-teaching. And and they did. They came up with games, they came up with exercises. If if we had an hour, I could tell you some of the things <laughs> they did. But um that that worked. I was at one of your sessions at the Digital Media and Learning Conference a couple of years ago, and I remember you used the term co-learners. That's what you call your students. And I really like that, and I kind of stole it because I, I like that how that shifts the focus. What are your thoughts on on how if we move to some more online spaces um, or all online spaces, how that will affect learning? And the bigger question is: Are Michael and I going to get fired if the internet's so smart? I don't believe that online learning is going to replace being in the same place with other students all and right. teachers. So our jobs are safe, you're saying? Oh, no, I'm not saying that. Uh, oh, dear. <laughs> no, I'm really nervous again. Well, I was an adjunct, and, and oh, okay. adjuncts like me got, got to um, relieve some of the financial pressure on, on, on paying tenure-track uh, professors like you because they don't pay adjuncts very well. I didn't particularly care about that. I was not in it for the money, and I didn't particularly care if I was fired. I was hired year to year. You know, that's a whole other story. Um, <laughs> In 2011, I think it was, uh, when I wasn't teaching, I, I taught primarily in the, in the fall and the winter and, and did not teach in the spring and the summer. In the spring, um, I needed to make a little money. And I thought, I, I just put this idea out on Twitter. I said, would, would, uh, I know some things about what I call mind amplifiers. Who here would pay $100 to take an online course with me? And so... Uh, a bunch of people responded, and so I, I started using the same media, forums, um, chats, uh, blogs, and, uh, and, and video uh, to teach completely online. And I have to say that in answer to your question, the one critical uncertainty is motivation. Uh, students need to take courses. They are required to take some courses, and then others they're required to take some electives. They need to take the course and, and pass that course in order to graduate. In my online courses, it was whoever is interested. So immediately, I have a, a, um, less of an uphill battle in, in getting students engaged. And for the most part, students have learned to be students. They've learned what's gonna be on the test. They've learned what the rules of the system are. Um, it's a little bit boring. Um, John Taylor Gatto and, the, and, and his work on how schooling uh, trains people, Ivan Illich's work on how schooling trains people, I'm not, ha, have all gone over this territory. There's nothing new about it. You know, my job and your job was to try to get that light bulb to go on uh, behind their eyes, and you can see it uh, sometimes when they're, when they're actually interested and in paying attention, and you can see the the wheels turning. That's or they're not there. Yeah, and and that's and that's an advantage of of face to face is that yeah. there's this field in a classroom that that's not really present even on video uh, online. However, this is where co learning came from. I when I email my students, I always say uh, esteemed students. When I started emailing the people who signed up for my online course, I said, esteemed co-learners, because that's where my teaching was going. I, I, I 
don't relinquish my authority on the subject matter. But I think I have things to learn from students, particularly this subject matter. And you know, if you're teaching ancient Greece for 20 years, probably nothing new you have to learn from your students. If you're teaching about social media, I guarantee you that, that some of your students are going to know more than you do about something. So I was there to learn as well. And, and, I, and I think that works. And I think if you want to have a co-learning community, the teacher has to exhibit the ability to learn. And to, and to do that, you have to admit that you don't know everything. And that's scary for teachers. I understand it was, it, it was scary for me, but it paid off so well. So when we started, I emphasized that there, was, there were texts and we would have discussions and, and we would have assignments. I call them missions. But primarily, we were there to form a co-learning community in which we each brought something of what we might know about the subject matter, what we might bring to discussions of the texts to each other. That, yes, I would lecture, but for the most part, we would talk with each other. And that it's not as easy as it sounds. Getting a, a, a forum discussion really going requires some skill. Knowing how to handle the multitasking involved with a, an, an online uh, video, audio, chat, co-learning situation, that requires some, some skills. But it does happen. And when it ignites, it's very exciting. And I had people literally on four different continents who had never met each other, never would meet each other, never heard of each other, suddenly working together um, to learn together. And, and the excitement was, was infectious. So I know that can happen. I haven't really mastered the art of making it happen every time. And I don't really know what all the ingredients are. I know some of them. And I tell my students, my co-learners, I can't guarantee that the magic will happen. A lot of it is up, up to you. But I, I can tell you that it has happened and it can happen and, it, and it's exciting. So there's some empowerment, some ownership, um, giving the students ownership of the community that they're building? Well, they, you know, that takes a little while. They don't really believe that's what, what's going to happen. I mean, they've been trained their whole lives that you're the authority. And after all, I can't change the fact that my grade for them matters more than their grade for me, that authority is, is always there. I think just let's bring it out in the open and let's, let, let, let's talk about it. But let's, let's see what we can do about taking some, some responsibility. And, you know, that's an abstraction, um, taking some responsibility for your learning. More concrete is I want you to come up with a, a plan for, for co-teaching with me. And then there's the eternal question, what's going to be on the final? Finally, I came up with, well, that's up to you. So the final ended up, uh, well, one of the co-teaching co tasks was to, to facilitate the creation and upkeep of a lexicon on our wiki of all the terms and phrases that we used in, in class and in the texts and that I mentioned, and that was up to everyone, kind of a little mini Wikipedia. And it was pretty amazing what they produced. Finally, my answer was, it's up to you. Take your forum posts, your blog posts, and all the words in the wiki, and, and, and give me something. It could be a document, it could be a video, it could be a slideshow that shows me that you know what you're talking about, about the subject. 
a lot more interesting than, than, than grading multiple choice uh, tests and, and I think better learning. So while we're talking about, you know, the skills that we want students to develop with the internet, does that mean there are new skills that students should be getting in class in schools? Well, so, you know, since I started getting involved in this stuff back in the 1980s, whenever I published something, there would be criticism from scholars and scientists and academics and, and, and book reviewers about, is this stuff any good for us? So in the 1980s, it was this stuff was personal computers. Then it was communicating through uh, online networks. And then it was mobile media. And, and that's a big question. I mean, I raised a daughter and I saw her use of media and, and asked that question, is this really good for her? And I think after literally decades of thinking about it, my, my answer was, it depends on what people know. This, this might be an, an, a hopeful or optimistic take on it, but I believe that there's a literacy involved. And if you know how to use search, you know how to use social media, you have a tremendous advantage personally. And also, you're going to contribute to the commons and enrich it for others. If you don't know it, you could be in trouble. When we talk about search, we live in the age where, you, where anybody can ask any question anywhere at any time and get a million answers in, in one second. However, unlike the 1,500 years since the, the printing press, you can no longer trust the authority of the texts that you get back. It's up to you to try to do some, what I call crap detection after Hemingway, to determine which are the good answers and which are not. What could be more powerful than, than, than search? I don't know about you, but I use it 100 times a day. What could be more dangerous than searching for political information and getting some of the information that's available out there? What could be more dangerous than searching for medical information and getting some of the information that's available out there? So that skill, I think, is fundamental. I wrote a book in 2012 called Net Smart about what I call the five essential literacies. There certainly are more, but you've got to boil it down for a book. Right. Um, craft detection being fundamental. If you can't tell the, 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 the truth from the misinformation and the disinformation, the other skills are not going to be as useful. The, the, the second one, um, well, no, I'm sorry. The first one is attention. We don't really have time to talk about that, but I think every, every, professor in a classroom ever looks at their students and looks at the back of their laptops. And you have the, the issue of, are you going to ban laptops in class or are you going to find a way to deal with it? And that's, we can do an entire talk just about that. I love from your book, just share one little anecdote, um, which by the way, NetSmart, you should buy it. It's a fantastic book. But if you only have time for the, to get into the short article, we'll share um, an article you wrote called Attention and Other 21st Century Social Media Literacies. It's a great intro into the concepts that are in NetSmart. But I loved in the book you talked about how in your class, I think you had a class of about 60 students, and you told them five of you can have your laptops open to look up information, to check facts of things we're talking about. And, but you, there was no other rule. And so they had to like look at each other and figure out who gets a, the privilege of it. But to me, I think your point was it made them conscious not just like having their laptop kind of open and every once in a while I'm going to pull up 
you know, Facebook and see what's going on and tune out of the class. But if you had your laptop open, it was like a privilege and there was a consciousness you had to have about it, about, okay, I'm not using it. I should let someone else look at the information. With great laptop comes great responsibility. <laughs> I thought it was genius. Consciousness is the key word there. Because, when, you know, when I wrote the book, it's got my, my uh, editor, I mean, it was MIT Press, my editor said, you've got 500 footnotes. And I said, well, you know, I want, first of all, I want to be able to back up everything I say. And secondly, I want people who want, who want to look more deeply to have a, a guide to that. So you do the research on what's called mindfulness and the research on, on attention. A couple of things are clear. Multitasking doesn't really work for most people. For some people, it does. And I think that's interesting. My and students think it really works when they do their homework. Um, but it doesn't. It makes it last so much longer. Yeah. But getting them to realize that is a very, um, well, it's an uphill battle. Did you use the term, Howard, attention shifting? I got that from somewhere, and I think that's so much more accurate because usually you're just shifting your attention and the other things in the background. Right. Right. It's like time sharing on, on computers. And, and the research shows that when you shift, it takes some time to get back to where you were. And so that's why it's less efficient. There may be some uh, efficiency may not be the only goal sometimes. So that, that, that's a, uh, another issue. But being aware of what you're doing with your attention is the most important part. And as I said to my students, look, you, you open your laptop, you want to take notes, you want to look something up, and, then, and that's conscious. And then somehow you drift into Facebook or your email. You're not really aware of that. I want you to start becoming aware of that moment in which the, the people who are running those online services are grabbing your attention and you're not controlling your attention because what the research shows and, and what all the contemplative traditions for thousands of years have claimed is that if you pay attention to your attention, you can train it. And I think we've got these attention magnifying devices, attention magnet devices that are are very well tuned to try to keep your attention to these websites that make money off your attention, and we have no training. I really appreciate your optimistic view of how we should address this issue and how we can, because I just read um, Nicholas Carr's famous Atlantic article, Is Google Making Us Stupid?, and came away a little depressed that my whole mind has just shifted, and now I'm not in control of it anymore, and I'm just kind of a dumber mm. person since I've been using the internet. It is difficult to think about like how our sh our attention has shifted so much and can shift without us thinking about it. And so your other literacies were attention, participation, collaboration, network awareness, and and crap detection or critical consumption. Which so everyone can investigate those in his work. But our audience is a, a combination of higher education folks and and K twelve teachers. What advice would you give to them to continue thinking about? the internet and its role in our lives that what you've been thinking about for so long. Well, first of all, you, you can turn to the, to the, the same networks and communities that I turned to when I was an expert on, on social media, but a novice at, at teaching the ed tech community, um, the digital media and learning community. You can just uh, go to Twitter and look at the hashtag ed tech. Um, That's you can, tic tac toe sign ed tech. Yes, We're that's right. People. That's right. And um, DML, Digital Media and Learning, there's DML Central that I've, I've interviewed, I think, close to 100 educators there. There are other educators, K through 12, university educators all over the world who have, they've done some learning for you. So if you're new to this, 
you have a, a support system if you know how to find it. And that's sort of the, the first step is finding those other people. You know, I wrote an article called Twitter Liter Literacy. It's a little bit dated in its references because it's maybe six or seven years old. But um, Oh, goodness, you, that's the uh, Twitter heyday. If you know if you know how to find experts and engage them, it's a it's a wonderful opportunity to to co-learn with other educators. And look, they're educators; they're not going to say, "Don't bother me." It's a it's a it's a really exciting group. The other thing I would say is that what what I discovered is that if you if you give your students a little bit of authority, that is, they can take over the classroom for a certain period of time. They're, they're not just there to answer your questions. And an expectation of, of learning something that they will do, uh, they will do well. Um, trust your students, give them a little power. It, it's scary. Um, and it's scary to admit that you don't know everything, but it pays off. And again, I'm not the first person to say this. This goes back to educational theorists for a century. We now have these media that students are immersed in that can help you do that. Well, listen, Howard, thank you so much for chatting with us today. We really appreciate it. Well, I, you know, I want to spread the word because I think it's really exciting what the opportunities that educators have today. Speaking of spreading the word. Can you tell us where we can find your, everybody can find your work online, Twitter, Facebook, where else can they find your stuff? Well, uh, on Twitter, I'm H. Rheingold. Um, on Facebook, I'm Howard Rheingold. Um, but I've amassed, with, with the help of a librarian at Stanford, a lot of my work at Rheingold.com. So if you go there, there's a tab for learning, and there's a lot of stuff there. Fantastic. And, and for everyone, I mean, Howard's books are, are very readable. And, you know, I do appreciate you kind of live what you preach, kind of the way you've delved into participatory learning yourself, and you've really embraced it. Well, we're all paying it forward because it pays off for us. Absolutely. So again, thank you so much for joining us today. We definitely hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces, and we'll be sharing out a lot of the resources you mentioned today. Great. Thanks, guys. And here at Visions of Education, we're all about sharing the learning. So if you're doing something creative in education, tweet us at Visions of Ed. Or you can talk to us on our Facebook page. We also have a Facebook page. And of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off.